how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Galatians part one. Well, I don't know what your favorite book in the New Testament is, but mine is the last one I've studied. I really get excited about the last one I've really been into. Galatians, I've found, is nobody's favorite, but opinions about this little letter are very deeply divided, split right down the middle. People run hot or cold when they come to read Galatians. Here are some of the hot opinions. Luther said that Galatians was the best book in the Bible. He said, this is my epistle. I am married to it. It is my Katie. Well, now, if you know, he married a nun called Catherine, who was his Katie. What he's saying is, this is the book I'm married to. Another man said, this epistle was the pebble from the brook with which, like another David, Luther went forth to meet the papal giant and smite him in the forehead. It's quite a statement. You know that Goliath died of surprise, don't you? <laughs> Such a thing had never entered his head before. Well now, John Bunyan, John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, he said, I do prefer Luther's commentary on Galatians, except the Holy Bible, before all the books that I have ever seen as most fit for a wounded conscience. And that was John Bunyan's tribute to this old book. That's Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians, an old copy. And that book had a profound effect on John Bunyan and on John Wesley. It was while somebody was reading from this that John Wesley felt his heart strangely warmed at quarter to nine on May the 24th, 1738 in Aldersgate Street where there's now a Barclays Bank but there's a tablet on the wall to tell you that's where it happened. So Galatians has had a profound influence on Christian history and many Christians love this letter but by no means all. Some dislike it intensely. It's been called a crucifixion epistle. It's been called a thorny jungle. It's been called explosive. Every sentence a thunderbolt. So it's not a general favorite. Why? I've written down five reasons. First, it's too emotional for some people. It is the most highly charged letter it's, it's written at white heat. It must have been written on asbestos papyrus or something because it really is a heated letter and some people don't like emotion in religion. Classic story of a West Indian lady who went to parish church in East London and she was used to joining in. And when the vicar preached, she said, Preach it, brother, preach it, brother. Amen. Hallelujah. And finally the verger came over and said, would you please be quiet, you're disturbing the service. But she said, I've got religion. He said, you didn't get it here, madam. <laughs> Which I'm afraid was only too true. But you see, for some reason, particularly in England, our public school background said, don't let emotion get into religion. Keep it cool, keep it dignified. But when they read Galatians, here's a man who's writing at white heat he is burning with something, absolutely burning and very angry. 
and people don't like that in religion. Some people say it's too personal a letter, far too much personality in it, it's too autobiographical and certainly Paul has put more about himself into this letter than any other. He talks about his physical handicaps at one point, pleads with them on the basis of his own weakness but he's also mentioning at one point a public argument he had with no less than Peter where he had to stand up to Peter in front of a whole congregation and say, Peter, you're wrong. So that even in the early church the apostles had their public differences. Thank God they had. They weren't like us today, too anxious to sort of agree rather than differ, too anxious to avoid confrontation. No, when truth was at stake, even Peter and Paul would face each other up and fight for it. Other people find it too intellectual a letter and certainly it is very closely argued. Paul is really using all his rabbinical background and training to argue the case he's making and it's a very tight intellectual argument and to tell you the truth, none of the translations that I've ever read really got to grips with the thread of argument so I confess it, I've actually translated it myself, it's been published but uh, it's out of print unfortunately now but I'll read you bits of it as we go along because the argument is quite subtle and there are some very fine points in it and some people aren't bothered to use their intellect. You know, the greatest unexplored territory in the world is between your ears and we're to love God with all our mind. Let me confess, the most frequent comment I get after preaching is a kind of mild rebuke that says, well, you gave us something to think about today. And it's said in a tone of, I didn't come to church to think, you know? Well, I make no apologies for stretching your mind and Paul stretches your mind. It's a very tight argument and you need to study it very carefully and go through it again and again to see what he's saying. Some people find it too spiritual, surprisingly. I'm afraid it strips off all spiritual veneer. It really does hurt your pride, this letter. If you've got any pride left, then don't read Galatians because you'll have none by the time you've finished. It really does go to the root of the matter and they just find it goes through beyond your mind and your heart. It goes through to the marrow. It's the sharp two-edged word of God that penetrates. Above all, people have found it too controversial, too argumentative. It's funny about the modern mood is we don't want arguments in religion, you know? We don't want to quarrel. Let's just all be nice together and Galatians is not that kind of a letter. Galatians argues with other Christians, not with unbelievers, it's arguing and it has caused many arguments but if it hadn't caused that argument for Luther, the Reformation would not have occurred. So argument has benefited us greatly and this is why it's not popular today because we don't like divisions and differences lead to division and the two prime virtues considered today are tolerance and tact and neither is a virtue in the Bible but they are the two most considered Christian virtues in public opinion today that we should be tolerant of one another and tactful in what we say. Well, Jesus was neither and his followers have been neither. They are controversialists as he was we're afraid of discussing doctrine. Now is this unwillingness to face our differences a good thing or a bad thing? 
I was at a leaders' conference in January, 80 leaders, and for the first time, they've met annually for many years, but for the first time they decided to spend a whole day discussing differences. And the organisers of the conference were really very tense, thinking they'd have an explosion the following day, and they spent the first day giving us all lectures on how Christians should handle differences. And uh, I said to them, why are you so insecure? Do you think we can't differ and remain friends? I've found I can have a better relationship with someone I can differ with and really hammer it out and be honest with one another than the hypocrisy of papering over the cracks. But is it a good or a bad thing that we're unwilling for this? Well, it depends on whether the issues are primary or secondary. The trouble is we tend to get so heated over secondary issues that we are not really confronting people over primary things. I mean, does it really matter whether we have alcoholic wine or Ribena? And yet people get so upset about what's in the little cup on Sunday morning. On the Sabbath issue, I don't believe that's an issue that Christians should be making too much of. Paul says, let each be fully persuaded in his own mind. If one wants to regard Sunday as special, that's his privilege. If another wants to regard every day as the Lord's Day, that's their privilege. We haven't even the right to impose Sunday on each other as believers, never mind on unbelievers. Yet Christians are making that a bit of a big issue. But when we come to Galatians, we're handling some of the biggest issues of all. And here, these are not secondary. See, when we get to Revelation, we'll be looking at the amillennial, the premillennial, and the postmillennial Christian viewpoints, you see. And a friend of mine was asked when he arrived in the States, as soon as he got off the plane, are you amillennial, premillennial, or postmillennial? He said, that is a preposterous question, <laughs> which I thought was a neat answer. I wouldn't divide from other Christians on that issue. But on the things that Galatians is touching, I would divide over. These are fundamental issues without which you lose the Christian gospel. So, I'm afraid it involves fighting. And I want to tell you the biggest battles you will ever have are inside the church and not outside. That is painful, because who likes a family that's arguing and yet it becomes necessary? You see, the devil never destroyed the church from the outside. Whenever he attacks the church from the outside, the church gets stronger and bigger. But he can destroy it from the inside. And one of the quickest ways to do that is to pervert or corrupt or erode the gospel. And if he can do that, he knows he's destroyed the church from the inside. And I'm afraid he is succeeding only too well in our day. Now here we have two leading men, Peter and Paul, involved in a public confrontation on a fundamental issue. And I want to say a little thing here that may not be popular about gender. I believe God has given the responsibility of fighting for and protecting the doctrine of the church to the men. And it is a tragedy that we don't have more strong men of conviction who will fight to protect the gospel. There are many women who want to and who try to but I believe, and I'm confessing a weakness of my gender now, there are not enough men prepared to stick their neck out and confront error when they hear it or see it. Well, I just throw that in. But Peter and Paul did fight it out. Peter was in the wrong and Paul was in the right. And the Bible has been honest enough to share that with us.
and clearly God wanted us to know about that confrontation. Now let's look at the letter. A letter in the ancient world, there were many, is nevertheless a unique form of writing because in those days with no public mail service, letters were neither cheap nor easy to send. You had to find someone who was going to a place and you then paid them to go. And that letter was carried by hand. Well, if a letter cost you fifty pounds a time, you would not write so many. There was no such thing as holiday postcards from Pompeii then. And so letters were very important, much more important than they are today. We just scribble off notes all the time. But they only wrote when there was something very, very important to say because it would cost so much to send and be so difficult to get through. So they had to have a very good reason for sending one. The form in which they wrote, of course, was just a long strip of parchment rolled up. And they had a very sensible habit, I don't know why we don't do the same. When you began to unroll it, the first thing you saw was the name of the sender and then the address to which it was sent and the readers, the recipient. Now you see, what we do is we send a whole letter and I get many letters, pages long, some people want to tell me their life history, and they always put the name of the sender at the end. And so you find yourself opening a letter and then looking on the last page to find out who sent it. What a silly habit, isn't it? Why don't we say at the beginning, this is from me? And that's what they used to do so that as you unrolled it, you got, well, the postman just had to unroll the first inch or two to know where to take it and who to give it to. And the person who read it knew immediately. And then another custom was that as soon as you did that, you wrote the greetings always greeted them in some way and then it was almost an unwritten rule, you said something nice about the person you sent it to, especially if you're going to say something not so nice later. <laughs> now it's interesting that Paul follows this form of a letter almost every time and he begins even with the Corinthians and boy they were in trouble. They were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, they didn't believe in the resurrection anymore, they were dividing into cliques, they were doing nothing but tongues when they got into worship. It was a real mess. But he begins the letter, I thank God that you've got every spiritual gift. Begins with something nice before he says something nasty. That's the custom. And that makes it all the more unusual that when he writes to the Galatians he has nothing nice to say. And he would have done so if he could. But this letter, no compliments, no I thank God for you, Nothing. He's just straight in with a red-hot criticism because there's something he's just so filled with, he's exploding with it and he can't even wait to follow the usual courtesies. Now one other thing of general introduction to letters, to epistles. When you read an epistle you must remember you're only hearing one side of a conversation. A correspondence corresponds to a situation and therefore you have to read between the lines as well as the lines. It's rather like, have you ever been in a room with a telephone and it's gone and somebody else has answered the phone and you've only heard their side of the conversation? I'll guarantee you try and construct the other side, don't you? Well, let me just try that and see if you can put together the situation that I'm speaking to on the phone. Hello? 
It's arrived then. Congratulations. Yesterday, how much does it weigh? <laughs> what color is it? They usually are. Do you think you'll have enough use for it? Mind you, they can be quite dangerous. But then it's fairly flat in your part of the world. Think you'll find it a bit thirsty. Is it the petrol or the diesel version? <laughs> All right, ultimately, I'm phoning a farmer who's just won a tractor in a sweepstake. <laughs> now, at what stage did you even begin to think that way? <laughs> Do you see what I mean? When you only hear one side of a conversation, your brain can get the wrong idea about the other side of it, if you're not careful, because you come to it with preconceived notions. Now, when you read an epistle, somehow you have to try and reconstruct the situation to which it's written. And you read between the lines, you say, what was happening that needed this letter? And it's the most healthy way of studying the letters. You don't need to study a gospel that way, but you do need to study a letter that way. Well, we're going to use that method now to look at Galatians. Why was it written? What questions was it answering? What problems was it giving the solution to? That's how you study every letter in the New Testament. Well, now the writer of the letter, there's no doubt about who this was, Paul no debate, whatever, and it is probably the first letter he ever wrote to a church or to churches. And that's why I've taken it first before Romans. Romans was one of the last letters he wrote, though it comes first in your Bible. So I've just reversed the order. This was one of the earliest, probably the first, that he ever wrote. By any standard, Paul was one of the greatest men who ever lived. Born in Tarsus in so southern Turkey, as we know it now, that was the third most important university, Tarsus. After Athens, number one, and Alexander, number two, Tarsus was number three in academic importance. It was a bit like Durham to Oxford and Cambridge. Or am I offending someone? <laughs> he had Jewish parents who were Roman citizens and spoke the Greek language. Now, what a background. You know, God prepares us for ministry even before we're born but he prepares us with our experiences. Long before we know him, he's putting things into us that he can use later. What a mixed background. A really Jewish Jew whose parents were Roman citizens and therefore he became one, inherited that status and spoke the Greek language. He was taught a trade as every good Jewish man is. Every Jewish man must learn to work with his hands. That's a healthy thing. See, in Greek society, if you worked with your hands, you were lower down the social scale than those who worked with their heads and were pen pushers. And we have inherited that attitude. But in the Bible, a tent maker and a fisherman had something else. Paul says in one of his letters to Thessalonica, you should all work with your hands, all of you. I've given you an example to do that. The dignity of manual labor. Jesus was a carpenter for 18 years. So he was a tent maker, probably for the army, and then he studied in Jerusalem University under Professor Gamaliel, as I've already told you, and he became an ultra-Orthodox, fanatical, proud 
Hebrew of the Hebrews, Pharisee of the Pharisees. You couldn't get anybody more Jewish than Saul of Tarsus, a Judaistic bigot. And he really tried very hard to keep every law of Moses, 613 of them. We try and make do with 10, but actually there were 613. If you're going to keep the law, keep the lot. Don't just choose 10, keep them all. And he did. He does admit that he had real problems with one. It's very interesting which one. It was the 10th commandment. Don't be greedy, don't covet. And it's interesting that that's the one commandment that deals with your inner motivation. The others deal with outward behaviour, but that deals with the heart. And he said he had real problems with that one, but he, he managed to keep the lot as touching the law blameless. Now, there are not many who could say that. And he'd achieved a great deal of self-righteousness. He attacked everybody who attacked Judaism. If anybody undermined the Judaistic faith, he went for them. He was an anti-missionary in that sense, and especially these new followers of Jesus claiming that he was God. That was so against Jewish monotheism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. How can there be another? And he felt this was the ultimate blasphemy and he was determined to wipe it out. And in fact, he set out to destroy this new faith and he watched Stephen stoned to death. That was it. From then on, he began to be pricked in his conscience. It was hard for him to kick against the pricks. And he saw that young man die, and that young man, as he died, he said, I can see Jesus on the right hand of God. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And that made him fight this new faith even harder, because now he was fighting himself. And there's nobody fights so hard as people who are fighting their own conscience. Then on the Damascus Road he met Jesus. And you know that all that a Jew needs to become a believer in Jesus is to know that he's alive. I was once preaching near Cambridge and a Jewess was in the congregation and afterwards she came to me, she said, are you trying to tell me that Jesus of Nazareth is still alive? I said, that's what I'm saying. She said, but if he is, then he must be our Messiah. Like the little word our, you know. She meant hers, not mine. And I said, that's right. She said, how could I find out if he's alive? I said, just try talking to him right there. And she found out. And you know, within 10 minutes she was teaching me the Bible. She said, then this and this and this and this. She got it all. The one thing she hadn't got was the knowledge that Jesus of Nazareth was still around. And that's all the Jewish nation will need. They will look on him whom they pierced and a nation will be born in a day. I can see that happening. And Saul was a, a, a forerunner of all that happening to the rest of his people on the Damascus Road. And he became the Gentile missionary. And even on that first day, the Lord said, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. Well, now that's the man who wrote this letter. And he became the most enthusiastic follower of Jesus ever. An ardent propagator of the faith he once tried to destroy. And so he knew both Judaism and Christianity inside out. And he'd switch from one to the other. That's the background. And on successive missionary journeys, he planted churches throughout the then known world, constantly pioneering fresh territory. He called it colonizing for Christ. Lovely phrase. Now, what about the readers? There's a bit of a problem here because 
Galatia, there are two Galatias, and scholars spend a lot of, waste a lot of ink arguing which it was. In what we now call Turkey, there was a group of cities in the north called North Galatia, there's a group of cities in the south called South Galatia, and the whole thing is, was it written to the North Galatians or the South? We have a little interest in the North because that was Celtic, it was originally colonised by Gauls, people from Gaul, and later, about the year 250 BC, they would send mercenaries, hired soldiers all over Europe, and those soldiers became the Irish, the Scots and the Welsh, the Celtics. And so uh, there are Scots, Irish and Welsh who would love to believe this letter was written to them. But I have to disappoint them all, I don't believe it was written to North Galatia. South Galatia was a group of, of cities, Lystra, Derby, Antioch, Iconium, and these were the towns to which Paul had already gone. And it's understandable that he would write a letter like this because when Paul had planted churches, as soon as he had elders in them, he left. And he left them entrusted to these new elders and to the head of the church in heaven and his vicar on earth, the Holy Spirit. And he trusted them and the Holy Spirit to continue. Unfortunately, what happened to them has happened to many new fellowships today. Other men come in and try and take over the work. Always beware of men who come and take over. They are often dangerous men. And in fact, there are men looking around, building their empires by taking into themselves fellowships that other people have planted, that are not their work, but getting them under their wing. It's dying down a bit now in Britain, but it was three or four years ago, it was just happening all over the place. And uh, it's so often later leaders who come in and take over the work, who take it astray and lead it down the wrong paths, and Paul had that, and I'm afraid the people who did it were Jewish believers who followed Paul around everywhere, they were his biggest problem, and they said to the Gentiles, don't listen to Paul, he's only given you half the story, he's brought you to faith, yes, but he didn't bring you fully into the faith because you need the law of Moses as well as Christ. I'm amazed how often I go into churches in this country and see the Ten Commandments stuck up on the wall. Tell you something, the first church I became pastor of in 1950, uh, sorry, 52, um, so it wasn't the first church, sorry, first church in England that I became pastor of. I was a pastor in Shetland Islands before that. But the first church in England had the Ten Commandments up on the wall behind my head in the pulpit in chocolate brown Gothic lettering. <laughs> And I said, the first thing I'm going to do is paint that out. And I got a pot of paint and I just painted all over it. And you know, there was an outcry. Somebody said, there's nothing to read during the sermon now. <laughs> I said, well, you can play bingo with the hymn board numbers, <laughs> but I'm not preaching in front of that. I really am not, because that's not, not what I've come to preach. Well, they said, we've got to have something there. So I did put a, up a cross in those days and put that up on the wall, but I'd rather preach that than the Ten Commandments. We'll come back to that in a moment, I may be shocking some of you. But you see, everywhere Paul went and brought them the full Gospel of Christ, these believers, Jewish believers, followed up and said, of course he hasn't told you everything, 
and we've now come to give you the whole situation. That's exactly how leaders talk today when they try and take over other people's fellowships. You know, well, good as far as you've gone, but we've got more and we've got the whole thing for you. And they walk in and take over other people's work. Now, South Galatia, I'm sure it's south, with those key cities which Paul had established the work in, gone back and appointed elders, left them with the Holy Spirit to guide them. But then these other leaders came along and spoiled the work. Now, Paul has heard some very bad news about his baby churches, the ones that he laboured to bring into being. His work was being undone. And two things were happening. First of all, they were making additions to his message. It was the Gospel plus. And that again is something we've got to watch. So many sects and cults around add to the Gospel and they usually add another book to the Bible, have you noticed? They add Mary Baker Eddy's Science and Health to the Bible or they add Joseph Smith's book to the Bible. Beware of anybody who says you've got to have this book as well as your Bible. It's the Gospel plus again. Something's being added on and you can only put so much luggage in a canoe before it overturns. Or to put it another way, rot starts in the pulpit. Dry rot. <laughs> Bad teaching is the one thing we've got to be on our guard against. Bad teaching. But when you add to the Gospel, you invariably attack the messenger who brought the original Gospel. And it wasn't just that these teachers were adding to Paul's Gospel, they were attacking the messenger. And indeed that's one way, if you don't like what a man says, you attack him. See? You say things about him. And unfortunately they were attacking the messenger as well as adding to the message. That that's what was happening. So let's look at what the issue actually was. What was all the trouble about? Well, a first reading of the letter and you would think it was about circumcision. That seems to be the thing that Paul's going for hard. Well, let's look at circumcision. Was he making a mountain out of a molehill? Why get so hot up about this little thing if people want to be circumcised, that's okay. Was he justified in making such a song and dance about this, this Jewish custom of circumcision? A minor operation, the removal of part of the reproductive organ of the male, not practiced on the females in Judaism, though it is in certain tribes in Africa. It's now done for medical or social reasons. It's a widespread habit in the Semitic world, largely for hygienic reasons in that climate, but to the Jews it had a religious significance. To the Jew it was fundamental. There was a day when Hitler's Gestapo would just line up people in the streets of Berlin and make them drop their trousers to find out who they should cart off to the concentration camp. It's the mark of a Jew. And of course it was only on males because in the Jewish world it is the male who inherits and the inheritance passes down, the promises pass down through the male line, therefore females were not circumcised. And it was a sign of eligibility to inherit the blessing promised to Abraham. 
And it was even said by God to Abraham that if any Jew was not circumcised, he any Jewish male, he had to be thrown out of the people of God because he'd broken the covenant. Part of the covenant with Abraham was that every male descendant would bear this mark. So that to a Jew this means everything. Three things that mean everything to the Jew are the Passover, the Sabbath and circumcision. Whatever else they do or do not do, they may be liberal Jews or non-practicing Jews, but those three things still apply. Probably kosher food is the fourth that most would observe, but not all. But those three things of circumcision, the Sabbath and the Passover, those are an absolute must. Paul argues in Galatians that the promise made to Abraham was only intended for one male descendant of Abraham that the word seed was single, singular, not plural, and that when God said to Abraham and his seed, he didn't mean to all his male descendants but to one of them. And Paul argues that when that one male seed came, which was Jesus, then circumcision becomes obsolete because now it's been inherited. The one to whom it was promised has got it, so there's no point in circumcising anybody now. Do you follow the argument? And you'll find that in Galatians 3. So it was a sign of inheritance. Jesus had that sign. Jesus was circumcised and he was the one who inherited. Paul had been circumcised as a Jewish male in his Jewish day and he did actually circumcise Timothy and Timothy came from Galatia. And yet Paul circumcised him. Why? Because he was going to accompany Paul in his missionary work and Paul always went into the synagogue first and preached to Jews and Timothy would never have managed to get in with him if he hadn't been circumcised. So Paul did it purely as an act of accommodation for evangelism in the same way that C.D. Studd and others grew pigtails when they went to China <coughs> to try and open a door to get alongside people. But here is Paul who would circumcise Timothy from Galatia for that reason, who is now saying, how dare you consider it? And some people said, Paul, you're inconsistent. You circumcised Timothy, why shouldn't we? So that's the occasion and that's the situation. But behind circumcision lies something else. His language, by the way, uh, reminds one again that the Bible is not a book for children, it's a book for adults. Tragedy is that most people stop reading it when they become adult. But it's not a children's book, but Paul really uses the strongest language. He says, I just wish those who would cut off your foreskins would go the whole hog and castrate themselves. Then they wouldn't be able to reproduce themselves. Strong language. Why is he saying this? At one point he says, if you have your foreskin cut off, you'll have Christ cut off from you. Now, very blunt, strong language, quite unlike some of his other letters. Why is he saying this? Why is he so against circumcision? The answer is because behind circumcision lay Judaism. And Judaism is, I'm afraid, still a religion of works. It's a religion of saving yourself by keeping the commandments. It's an impossible task but so many people try it. And the danger of putting the Ten Commandments up on the wall is precisely that you're communicating to people you've got to live this way in order to get right with God. And an outsider coming in is faced straight away with thou shalt. 
By the way, it's being said of some liberal scholars these days that they take the word not out of the Ten Commandments and put it into the creed. So that now the Ten Commandments are thou shalt commit adultery and thou shalt steal and thou shalt do all the other things and the creed says, I do not believe in the virgin birth and I do not believe in the <laughs> bodily resurrection. That's a, a rather neat criticism. Uh, but faced with all thou shalt nots, apart from anything else, it gives the impression that we're against everything, that we're negative and that if you come anywhere near God, he'll stop you having fun. You know, that God is a thou shalt notter and that he faces you straight away with the things you mustn't do. That's a tragic negative impression that's given. But Judaism is essentially... Now, Christianity is rooted in Judaism, which in turn is rooted in the Old Testament, as we are. But how much of the former should be kept in the latter? How much of the Old Testament comes through to the new? How many of those 613 laws actually apply to us? That's one of the biggest questions you've got to face when you study the Old and the New Testament. Let me give you an example. I cannot ever tell Christians to tithe because it's an old covenant law and it belongs to the law of Moses. It's never mentioned in the New Testament when speaking to Gentile believers. Jews did it, but no Gentile believer was ever told to tithe. We are told to give. And I listened to a young man preaching on tithing and he'd used his computer or his concordance and he typed in tithing and got all the printouts and he actually said this and he was honest enough to say this. He said, there are blessings attached to tithing and he gave us them all, you know, prove me now herewith if I don't open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing on you. And then he said, but there are curses attached to tithing as well, which is true. And he proceeded to tell us about a curse in the Old Testament, which is there, that our grandchildren and great-grandchildren will suffer if we do not bring our tithes. And I looked at the face of the congregation and boy, the fear of causing their great-grandchildren to suffer. And it's no wonder the offering was pretty big the following Sunday. <laughs> but I was horrified. I said, that's wicked. In the New Testament, it's on altogether a different principle. The Lord loves a cheerful giver, which doesn't mean grin and bear it. It means that you want to give. That's what he's after now. Not people forced to give in case their great-grandchildren suffer. That belongs to the Old Covenant. Have I made it clear? Sabbath law is another one. Now we've really got to think what we're doing before we apply Old Covenant laws to Christians. Because if you apply some of them, you must apply all of them. And if you apply the blessing, you must apply the curse. Now, are we prepared to do that? I'm not. See, I believe we've got to rethink this issue. And Paul is saying, if you get circumcised, that's just the camel's nose in the tent. and You'll soon have the hump and all. If you go the way of circumcision for the reason these teachers are teaching it, then all the other 613 laws will follow and come in. That's why he's so anxious. Not about circumcision itself, but it opened the door to Judaism and he was finished with that. He tried it. He'd done his best at it and it left him. In fact, he said, when I consider the commandments I've kept, not the ones I've broken, but the commandments I kept, he said, I feel like a little boy holding up his potty and saying, look what I've done. 
and he uses a very crude word in Greek for dung. I count it but dung as a good Anglo-Saxon equivalent. He said, that's what it is, my self-righteousness, that's all it produced. And he said, thank God I'm delivered from all that, set free from it. See, I think if you tell people to keep the laws of Moses, you're consigning them to hell because they can't do it. Just by way of light relief, let me tell you about an experience. I, I had a telephone call from Israel. All the Christian churches, Arab and Jewish and missionary from Israel, were get, getting together in Tiberias in Galilee for a conference and they'd really come to a point of disagreement and they wanted someone from outside to come and help them sort it out. And they rang me up and said, would you catch the next plane to Israel and come and help us with this problem? Well, I said, uh, I'll try. But when I found out the cost of a last-minute seat, it was about £830 return and I hadn't got it and I didn't feel I could ask them for so much. So uh, I thought, what can I do? There was a group of Arab and Israeli young people out there praying for me to come and they asked the Lord how much he could get me out for and the Lord told them in shekels, £120. And those young people collected £120. I went to Luton Airport and I said, have you got a charter plane going to Jerusalem? Could you put me on a charter plane? They said, we've got one going today, but it's full. And they said, would you mind a crew seat? I said, not at all. And it was one of those backward-facing, upright seats. I had a bad back for days, but I was sitting facing backwards and I looked around and I thought, I'm the only Gentile on this plane. I was facing four rabbis. So we, we had, we had a, a kosher meal and then I thought, it's time we start talking. So I said to the first one, excuse me, but do you keep the law of Moses? He said, of course. I said, what about this one? Oh, well, he said, no. He said, the chief rabbi allows us to do something different instead of that now. Oh, I said, you don't keep that one now. No, he said, no. So I said to the second, do you keep the law of Moses? Of course. I said, what about this one? Well, he said, you see, we haven't got a temple now, so we can't offer sacrifice. We can't do that one now. Oh, you don't keep that one. Went right along. And finally, the fourth one, he said, what are you, orthodox or liberal? <laughs> and uh, so I said, neither. We went on a bit. And I'll never forget one of them, the second one sitting straight up. He said, I know what you are. You're a Christian. He said, and you believe Jesus died to save you from all this. I said, bullseye, spot on. He said, so you think you don't need to keep all these? I said, I could no more keep them than you can. You know? and we had a great conversation and we finally landed at Ben Gurion Airport, only too quickly at the time, went too quickly. But you see, you can't keep them all. It's an impossible task. Don't put people under the law. Put them under grace. Now, this is very, very important. There is a law we're under, but it's the law of Christ. It's not the law of Moses. That law's obsolete. It's been done away. But you know, one of the biggest problems in the church today, and that's why Galatians is so relevant, we're constantly giving people a mixture of the law of Christ and the law of Moses. Constantly getting it mixed up. Why do you think churches today have vestments and altars and incense and priests? We don't need any of those things. They belong to the law of Moses, but they've crept back in. When are we going to be bold enough to apply Galatians as it was meant to be applied? Now, we better stop there and we'll come back in a few minutes. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. 
Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.